You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. I'm Jennifer Simard. And this is The 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 Fabulous Fabulous Invalid. Today we have David Henry Wong, and I know all three of us are very excited to have a chat with him. So I think we just go right to the uh, interview. Let's do it. Seconded, third. Third, yes. Done. Yes. <laughs> Today, we are delighted to welcome Tony Award-winning playwright, librettist, screenwriter, professor, activist, and former punk band member, David Henry Huang. Welcome, David. Welcome. Yay. Thanks for having me. Oh, super excited. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to answer this because you began your career at such a remarkably young age, but did you have a terrible non-theater job? So the closest I ever had to uh, a, a, a terrible a th- a non-theater job was... so. The, I, I was really freakishly fortunate to get out of the starting gate early. Um, and I, so I wrote this play it, 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 to be done in my dorm, and then it was scheduled to premiere at the public 14 months later. But um, I then had like a year to kill in, uh, in Palo Alto, where I went to college. Um, so I thought, oh, I should get a job or something. Um, so uh, on the bulletin board of the Career Planning and Placement Center, there was something about um, a sweeping job. Like I could learn to, I could sweep an alley at a bar. And I thought, oh, that would be a really good experience. <laughs> um, so I applied for this job, and it's not like there was any, you know, there were real, real, no real qualifications. So they gave me the job. Um, and then I discovered I didn't actually know how to sweep. Um, <laughs> Turns out it's a more technical job, it, it right? It is. Like, either you do, like, long strokes, in which case you don't get any leaves, or you take a lot of short strokes, and it just takes forever. And I would say after about half an hour, probably watching me through the window, the owner of the bar came out and, and you know, took my broom away and said, uh, maybe I was better suited for another line of work. Well, that certainly proved That's to be hilarious. true. Right. No you, talent. You no aren't going to talent. write the definitive book on the science of sweeping anytime soon. <laughs> um, no, I can um, give, I could maybe write a blog about how not to do it. Yeah. So you're, you're in what grade at Stanford? Junior? Sophomore? Um, oh, when I wrote FOB, I was, yes. a, I was a senior. You were a senior. So your first play was, what are you, 22 when you're senior, 23, something like that? Um, Depending on, I suppose. Yeah, I guess I wrote it, let me see, I wrote it in 78, so I was 21. And how did that get produced? Um, so first of all, I, I did write it to be done in my dorm, um, and we produced it there, and I directed a production, um, and the play was called FOB, or Fresh Off the Boat. Um, and then I sent it to the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference, uh, and it was accepted there. But I really think the way I got a production was because uh, was that around the time that it was being uh, done in my dorm, uh, the public produced a play called uh, New Jerusalem by Len Jenkins, in which a Caucasian actor was cast in an Asian role. And this led to probably the first, quote, you know, yellow face protests in New York theater history, where the Asian actors of that day uh, picketed outside the public. And Joe Papp, uh, of course, the founder of the public, Joe, because he was uh, 
always, you know, a big part of his mission was to create a theater which looked like New York. So he end up, ended up inviting the protesters into his office and hiring one of them onto his staff with the brief to find plays for Asian actors. And it was just about that time that my play came across their desk. So I really consider myself the beneficiary of affirmative action, mm -hmm. uh, right? Because that's what it does. It like right. identifies a social need and then creates a program to deal with it. So the door got opened and I was the guy who got to walk through. Mm. It's fantastic. And I believe your, your first four plays were produced at the public, right? Right. So the FOB was done at the public uh, in 1980 and uh, did well. It was actually one of uh, Frank Rich's first New York Times reviews. Um, and then Joe said he would produce you know, whatever I wrote. So uh, FOB then won the OB in 81 for, for best, best American play. Uh, and then Joe did my next three shows. Yeah, yeah. So you've written yourself into two of your works uh, as a character called DHH um, in both Yellowface and Soft Power, which I want to get to and talk about extensively because <laughs> I love that musical. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm curious to know, um, is he you? Or, or is, is he different? And if so, how is he different? Right. So I think that um, many writers write autobiographical characters. Mm. Um, the distinction is that most of the time we don't name them, name them after ourselves. Um, I also think the autobiographical character is more problematic as a whole in that it's difficult to get perspective on yourself. Yeah. Um, so even in a masterpiece like Last Menagerie, uh, one could argue that the Tom character is less well developed than the other two characters. Paradoxically, by naming a character DHH in Yellowface, I found that I was able to get more distance. Because I think that one of the things that writers do is that we kind of hide in plain sight. So you know, you create an autobiographical character. You normally don't name him after yourself. Um, you put in some things that are true from your life, and then you make up some stuff, and, you, you know, and, and people don't know, and people can guess. Um, but once I named the character after myself, in order to hide in plain sight, I realized, oh, I, I really don't want to be that truthful. Uh, because then it just becomes redundant. <laughs> um, which meant I had to create a character that had a, a character arc over the course of the show that changed, that was flawed, and then learned to sort of deal and, and, and face some of his flaws. Um, so a DHA, and in, in Yellowface, DHH is really kind of the stupidest character in the show in a lot of ways. I mean, he's really the butt of most of the jokes and makes most of the wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so, which is not to say that I don't, I'm not stupid at times, and I make, you know, of course I make wrong decisions, but basically I, I, he's a character. Um, one of the things that I'm kind of dealing with in Soft Power right now as we prepare it uh, for, uh, for its next production um, is... Uh, my collaborators are, I do have a reflex tendency from Yellowface to make DHH uh, uh, ridiculous, and my collaborators are encouraging me to, uh, to write him more earnestly, which I've, makes me cringe a little, but I think it's probably the right thing to do creatively for the show. Mm -hmm. I find him very earnest and soft power. Thank you. I, 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 mean, I, I thought I, I, he was plenty earnest already. <laughs> and my collaborators are telling me I could go a little further in being vulnerable, which makes me gag. Did you, <laughs> did, when you were writing the character in Soft Power, did you have Francis Zhu in mind, or did you, did you write it without an actor in mind? 
Um, in the early drafts of soft power, uh, Francis, uh, and some of the earlier workshops, uh, Francis was going to be the Xue Xing character, who is the Chinese executive um, that is uh, arguably the main character in soft power. Um, Xue Xing was going to be older, and DHH was going to be younger. So there were readings in which Francis played the Xue Xing character, uh, Francis Zhu. Uh, um, and so, uh, no, that, that changed over the development of the show as we learned more about the relationships between those characters. I went out to LA to see it. Oh, thank um, you. You may not know this about me, but I, I've spent the past decade working for Hillary Clinton. Oh my That's gosh. my day job, so <laughs> I know her very well. I'm on her personal staff mm-hmm. uh, currently. Um, and so I, I read about it in the Times, thought it was happening, and I happened to be in LA, you know, planning a trip to go to LA while it was playing, so I jumped at the opportunity to see it. Um, Good. I hope she comes to see it. The next I, I hope so too. I hope so too. She was very intrigued by it. She actually sent me the New York Times article before I oh, <laughs> found it on my own. And she said, "Do, do you know what this is?" And I said, well, well we, I'm actually going to go check it out. We had we, uh, well, how much can I say? we had reached out to her um, through an intermediary, <laughs> uh, and I can uh, talk to you yeah, through the details exactly, when we're not yeah. being taped. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, I'm I'm curious to know, and I think for folks who are listening to this, they might not they might not know about soft power yet because it hasn't come to New York, it hasn't um, sort of you know been on everyone's uh, radar yet. Um, so I'm wondering if you could explain just a little bit about the show so folks can have a sense of it, and then as part of that, you know, what was your your way in? How did you discover that this was going to be the next project you wanted sure. to work on? Sure. So. Um... So uh, let me try to first describe Soft Power, which is incredibly hard to summarize, but um, it's a play that becomes a musical. So the first 20 minutes is a, a comedy that takes place in 2016, and then the show jumps 100 years into the future, and the incident that we saw has since been mythologized and become the source material for a beloved East-West musical in China. So theoretically, what we're watching for the rest of the show is a future Chinese musical which celebrates, from a Chinese point of view, how uh, China stepped in to lead the world when America collapsed after the 2016 election. And so Hillary Clinton is a character uh, not so much in the play section, but they do go to a Hillary Clinton fundraiser. And then that incident uh, becomes mythologized into this big relationship, a King and I-like relationship between uh, a Chinese film executive and Hillary Clinton in the future musical. That is an excellent job of describing the show. Thank you. It was, uh, it's taken a long time. Unfortunately, we had two productions. I was able to do a lot of press and come up with that. <laughs> so what was your, what, 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 how did you happen upon this idea? So the original notion um, was that I wanted to do kind of a reverse King and I mm. uh, because um, it's a musical I've always loved. And um, when I saw the most recent uh, Bart Sher production, which is a gorgeous uh, uh, iteration of the show, um, 
you know, I loved it, but I also found myself more aware of things in it that were kind of suspect, like, you know, like the premise, really, which is <laughs> that, you know, this, this kind of English woman comes in and teaches the king of Siam how to rule his country and bring it into the family of nations. We um, can actually use her right now. Yeah. Where's yes. Anna? Right. right. Uh, yes, there is theoretically a whole other version of soft power that could be written, but anyway... Um, so the um, so I started to think about you know the real Anna Lewins and how she kind of mythologized herself and wrote this book and then uh, it, it, several iterations later it became um, became the King and I and this kind of complex uh, dichotomy between art which has a message which is questionable and yet it's so beautifully done that, you know, even uh, at the end of this most recent production, although I was thinking, um, oh, this, this, you know, is really maybe a, 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 a somewhat offensive, but at the end I'm still crying, you know, because it's so beautiful and the, the son, he's dying and his son's going to take over the throne. And so uh, there's this kind of disjunction, which I think a lot of us feel uh, when looking at classic material. Um, so I wanted to kind of create that feeling uh, for an American audience. And the idea, the original notion of the show was going to be a much, much more parallel, really, to The King and I in the sense that it would be about a Chinese film executive who has a glancing uh, encounter with the American leader, Hillary Clinton, and then when Hillary becomes president, um, it, that becomes mythologized into a musical. Um, so we actually had a reading of that early version of the show on election day 2016. Oh boy. Um, oh and then the next day, <laughs> um, I was like, hmm, mm. I think this is going to be really bad for the country, but it could be really good for the musical. <laughs> um, so the musical took a, a very sharp turn after that. Yeah. Reality is stranger than fiction, right? Yeah. You know? Are, did you rig the election? Is that, what, is that what we're discovering here today? Yes, it's, yeah. uh, I'm, uh, it's uh, Robert Mueller and Russia and everybody. <laughs> and and you, me. You're going to be indicted yeah. any second. Oh, my goodness. A lot of folks would, would describe your work as being political. Um, you know, whether it's touching on questions of identity and, um, you know, race and gender, um, or with soft power very explicitly, you know, politics. Um, would you describe your work as political, or is that sort of a silly thing? Or, or aren't all plays political? I mean, yes, I would argue all plays are political, <laughs> but I do think that uh, trying to address issues and uh, the, and my context in the world is something that gets me excited creatively. Mm -hmm. um, so I find that even when I'm working on projects that are not personal, when I'm, um, you know, working on somebody else's musical or I'm working on a movie that's an assignment, if I can find what I guess we would characterize as a political angle, um, then I, I, I it, acts as kind of an exciting engine for me. Mm. Um, and I guess I've always felt like writing is about doing something naughty in a funny way. It's like doing something that I'm not supposed to do. Mm. And, you know, I'm fairly um, polite as a, a person going through life. So the ability to sort of say things in the work um, more strongly than I might say them in life, or more, I mean, as, uh, or at least more subversively 
um, I think uh, makes my engine uh, run as an artist. Mm. Well, um, something that we haven't um, touched on yet that I think we have to say in this podcast because it's important is that you were the first Asian American playwright to have a play produced on Broadway. Yeah. Which was a monumental you know, achievement and a great moment for the arts. That was in 1988 mm -hmm. with M. Butterfly. Um, just this past year, we had the first female Asian American playwright produce a play, ha have a play be produced on Broadway, and that was Young Jean Lee's Straight White Men at Second Stage. That was, there's a 30-year gap there between you making history as the first man and, and she making history as the first female. Are you frustrated by that? I am always kind of surprised at the degree, at, like I keep asking people who are sort of theater historians, people like Peter Felici, I was like, you know, was there ever another not, Asian or, I mean, Asian American or root culture Asian, you know, someone from India, someone mm -hmm. from China who wrote a play that made it to Broadway before 1988. And nobody can seem to come up with any examples of that. So it's, it's kind of extraordinary, extraordinary that it took that long, um, A. And then B, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I'm surprised that for many years and for many decades, I still was the only Asian American to be produced on Broadway. And then you had um, Ayad, uh, Akhtar, you had Rajiv Joseph, uh, the musical Allegiance uh, that, that George Takei was in, and then Young Jean Lee. But, mo but all of those have been like in the last five or six years. Right. So I think progress is rather slow on Broadway, honestly, that there is the desire to um, change and to create, as Joe Papp put it, you know, the, a theater that looks like New York or looks like America. Um, and I think that increasingly there's the recognition that this is not only kind of a social justice issue, it's really an economic imperative. It's about the future of the field. Because if you, you know, if, if America is going to be majority people of color by 2040, and if we accept the assumption that people like to see themselves on stage, then uh, we're not preparing a theater for the audience in the future. Now, and you see that changing in television, you see that changing in Star Wars, um, and there's the desire to change in theater, but it's slower, honestly. And I think that's partially because like TV's more nimble, um, things, you write things in there, but in front of the cameras, you know, the next week, um, as opposed to taking three, five, nine years for, for shows to get on. But I also think that Theater has a problem in that it is basically content with its audience, which tends to be older and white or, you know, or kids. Um, and that, so the, the need to kind of cultivate a larger audience feels somehow less pressing than it does in some of these other mediums like, like film and television. Right. If if Broadway is selling out and having record profits, why change the model? Yeah. Yeah. But isn't that argument. but isn't that audience aging out? Well, yes. And so it, it's a real long term. I mean, I think everybody acknowledges it's a long term issue, but it doesn't seem to be an immediate. Yeah. I think that's the dichotomy between right. Where's the realizing. Urgency? Yeah. And what? How much of it is economics? Right. So how much of it? How much of the problem is also just the economics of getting a show up? Right. So it's it's. Um, it's very expensive, it's very time consuming. You don't just write a play and get it produced 
like like possibly happened years ago, right? Like it's it's a much longer process, right? I, 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 yeah, um, you know, like I was saying, I do think it's the length of time um, that these things take to develop, which makes the ship a little uh, uh, harder to turn around. Um, but that said, I do think there's a less of a sense of immediacy because Broadway feels pretty, you know, they're doing well, in terms of economics, they're doing well with the audience that they've got now. And so, the, and I, I often hear this sort of idea that, well, you know, we're not sure that if you try to expand the audience that they can afford to go to Broadway, so it's a, it's a price issue. But it's not, I mean, Broadway does also have a price issue. <laughs> but, you know, somehow people, uh, Audiences, very diverse audiences, manage to pay a lot of money to go see, you know, Jay Z and Beyonce. Um, so it's not like these audiences don't have money, right? Because premium ticketing isn't just on Broadway, right? It happens Correct. in all forms of entertainment now. Yeah, I mean, I just bought, you know, I bought my daughter tickets to the K-pop group BTS, and it was like. <laughs> $2,000 for two tickets. What? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Where are they performing? Um, they were at, um, let's see, well, uh, they were at City Field. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, wait. That's, that's pricier than Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> what did you do in this uh, punk band that we referred to? Were you a singer, musician? Um, so, okay, so, so when I was in college, I was... I was more of a musician uh, for many years. I was primarily a jazz violinist. So I played in basically three bands, one of which was sort of a jazz fusion band. One was like an Asian American, like, uh, you know, Asian American music band with um, a guy who also became a playwright named Philip Khan Gotanda. So, um, and I was Philip's sideman. Um, and then there was a punk band. Now, the punk band, um, it, it, we did. We kind of just recorded a single as a joke, um, and then over the years, it's become the band was called uh, John Vomit and the Leather Scabs, and yes. my character and my my you know punk name was Maggot Wong, and um, so we recorded it as a joke, and then over the years, it's kind of oddly become a bit of a collector's item, and it appears that we are uh, some madman is going to reissue it in vinyl. And then there was a whole discussion that was being had over emails by many of us who haven't seen each other in 30, 40 years. And I was like, are you sure that I was actually in the band? Because um, uh, yeah, it, was, it all happened so quickly. And I just wanted to make sure that there wasn't somebody else who should be getting credit for being in the band. Um, so that's about how much uh, I remember about having been in the punk band. We did go see the final performance of the Sex Pistols, however, in San Ooh. Francisco, uh, because that was right around that period, and um, which is much more fun to say than to actually have been at. <laughs> it's hilarious. You are currently the chairman of the American Theater Wing, and you're in your second year. 
Uh, third. Third year, excuse me. Yeah. Um, so as, as chairman, what are some of the things that you want to do with the organization? Do you have any particular platforms or causes or, or, or movements that you want to uh, help accomplish? Yeah, so, you know, it's unsurprisingly um, to try to move the needle on, on uh, inclusion and diversity is important to me. Um, and I think that it uh, begins with some initiatives that we are we have in the works um, that uh, to start out with are really trying to kind of measure the field, like to really understand the 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 degree of the problem. For instance, um, you know we already have statistics from APAC that show that. Um, Broadway casting, Broadway and the 12 major not-for-profit theaters in New York that over the past 12 years cast average about 75 to 80% white. So, you know, that's like a really bad diversity figure. Um, and I think that if we begin to address that in terms uh, across the field and get that sort of data where it uh, concerns not only uh, race but also um, gender, um, issues of non-traditional casting, uh, disabilities, all that stuff, um, then uh, I think we can, A, it surprises people to realize that we've made as little progress as we, as we have, and B, we can begin to uh, create some programs to address that and, and pipeline uh, programs uh, uh, because one of the things that the wing does, besides the Tonys and, and now the Obies, um, is um, to use our resources to create educational uh, programs and platforms. Because I feel like the perception of Broadway is that it is very inclusive, and that and that colorblind casting is a thing that Broadway has been championing for year, championing for years. However, to hear the number of seventy five percent, that's kind of shocking. Yeah. See, I, I do think people um, again have the desire to change, and I think philosophically. Um, a lot of Broadway is very comfortable with um, uh, so-called non-traditional casting. Um, but then if you look at the numbers and what actually gets done, um, it's still, we still have a long way to go. Sounds like you don't like the term non-traditional casting. Well, non-traditional casting, I think, has become somewhat problematic in that people tend to use it in, in a way that means you can go both ways. So it's like, oh, well, if, you know, if um, a Latino uh, actor can play Hamilton, then a white actor can be in an August Wilson play. Um, and, I, I, and I think that the, the statistics really help because the statistics for me say, okay, what we're trying to do is reduce that 75% figure. So that's why I can be kind of aesthetically inconsistent and say that I like it when uh, an act of color plays a traditionally white role, but I don't like the reverse. I think if you sort of boil it down to an employment issue rather than an aesthetic issue, uh, people tend to uh, understand it more easily. And part of it on Broadway, too, is, you know, I, there were a couple, a couple seasons ago, I think it was 2016, everyone was celebrating how diverse it was because, you know, Oscars were so white that year, and then we had Hamilton and the color purple. Yeah, I think and that then, year was like 70%, so that was much better. Right, there you go, you know, but then the next season it was like, oh, no, we're back to all white people yeah. because, you know, so much of it is dictated by 
what shows get produced in a given season, and there's no one person sort of dis- designing the Broadway season. Right. It's, it's, it's similar to how last season everybody was saying, oh, there are no plays on Broadway, and right. this mm-hmm. season everyone's going, there are 21 plays. <laughs> it's too many plays. Right? Yeah. I remember, I think it was the Oscars in 1992, and it was the year of Prince of Tides, so I'm getting the year wrong, but I remember mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand getting up there, and it was the year of the woman. The Oscars, the year of the woman. And right. I remember her speech... I just remember, I'm paraphrasing, she said, you're of the woman, that's nice. But it'll be really nice when we don't have to make that distinction anymore. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would argue the same thing with, quote, non-traditional casting. It'll be really yeah. nice to not have to say that anymore. <laughs> that it's just, yeah, that I mean, it's the, just term that I, the term that I tend to like nowadays, by the way, as opposed to colorblind casting, is color-conscious casting. Mm. So just sort of, it's, it's not that we kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. We recognize that it's, it's something that uh, goes into our calculations and our aesthetic judgments and, and try to be aware of that. I like that. Color-conscious casting. Yeah. Language matters, yes. Like that. We like definitives. Like we like declarative statements. I think we like black and white. We like mm-hmm. things like the year of the woman, or and and it doesn't tell it. It's not truthful. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it sort of absolves people of their you know need to have to do more or to care more. It's oh well, there's a there's a brand name. There's a, a name for it. We did it. We achieved it. Now we can move on. Yeah. You know when it's it's has to be a constant, consistent effort, right? Yeah. At all levels. Yeah. You know, I feel I, like we could spend another hour or two just talking about class and how that relates to theater, and mm. we don't talk about it nearly enough in this country, so that's a whole other podcast. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes which relates to the cost of theater, mm-hmm. and um, as I said, I don't know that cost itself is justifies the degree to which uh, theater has not been able to diversify uh, sufficiently in terms of ethnicity, but class is a, as a, a whole other discussion that yeah. uh, we need to have as well. Yeah, because the haves never want to, historically, ha- the haves never want to give to the have-nots. It, all right, I'm going off here. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I'm interested in hearing your perspective on um, you know, you mentioned that there's this great dichotomy between last season and this season and the number of plays. Uh, I think I remember reading, um, and I, I'll fact check this afterwards, but in like the 1980 season, there were like 75 plays on Broadway in one season. And I actually went back and I checked and there were. It was it, like unbelievable how that even happened. Um, and, you know, last season there were, people were scrapping to put together five to nominate or four to nominate for, for best play. Do you think that the American play has a place on Broadway anymore? Not that it should, but does it? Right. Um, So there's a few factors, I think, that make the play more problematic uh, on Broadway generally these days. Um, Number one is simply the... uh, the profitability of musicals now, uh, that ever since the 80s and since Cameron McIntosh basically developed the model of a, a musical that behaves like a movie that you can kind of franchise around the world and it brings in, the, all of a sudden Broadway was no longer sort of a mom and pop operation and that's when you start to get corporations coming in because there's real money to be made. Um, so, there's, of course, the desire, because Broadway is uh, this kind of uneasy marriage of art and commerce, there's the desire to, uh, to put on the shows that are, have the potential to make really big money. 
And then, because they do, um, and they run for 20, 30 years, uh, <laughs> then there are fewer Broadway theaters available. So th there's just this squeeze that happens. I think it is harder nowadays for plays to run, say, you know, and Butterfly ran two years. Um, Proof, I think, ran uh, like two or three years. Um, it's harder for plays to get that length of run, um, with, of course, the exception of Harry Potter, which is a play that behaves like a musical. Um, so what seems to have come up in its place, however, is um, this sort of limited run with major stars, and then the rise of not-for-profit theaters that own Broadway houses. And so those two factors seem to be kind of counterbalancing one another somewhat, um, which is one of the reasons you have 21 shows, uh, 21 straight plays on Broadway this season. I believe that number is correct. Uh, and I bet you that just about all of them are either in... Uh, second stage MTC um, roundabout one of the not-for-profits or um, fall into the model of the limited run with major stars. Mm. Wow. That's, it's interesting when you say there are 21 plays this season, that's a very encouraging number. And then when you break it down like that, it does seem really problematic and really frustrating. Right. Roundabout Manhattan Theater Club and Second Stage are producing three each at least, right? Mm -hmm. So there's nine right there. That's almost half of them are, you know, taken care of. And that's going to happen every season, basically, you know, moving forward so long as those companies are in existence. Yeah, and, you know, that's good in a lot of ways because right. otherwise you might, given the other factors, the, the, the profitability of musicals and the, the lack of houses, you might, not, you might have a season like last season where there's hardly any plays. Right. Um, so that seems to be the compromise that our field has landed on for the moment. A couple of your works have um, ex explicitly referenced other pre-existing works of art. Um, the most obvious example being um, M. Butterfly, you know, drawing inspiration from the opera Madama Butterfly, um, and Soft Power, you know, having that King and I connection. Um, I'm wondering, do you do you look to other works for inspiration, or is it just a matter of chance that those are the projects that have come along? Or yeah, I'm very conscious of um, modeling my work on other work. Mm. Um, so it, one of the things that I think tends to get people don't talk about that much where it comes to my work, um, is the degree to which I'm interested in form. Um, I think because I write largely about Asian and Asian American subjects and there aren't that many people that do that, that uh, factor, that aspect of my work tends to dominate any discussion of what I do. But I'm also, it's really important for me to find the form that matches the story that I want to tell. So, um, you know, uh, Chinglish, which was a comedy we did on Broadway a few years ago. Chinglish is sort of modeled on Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but it's also trying to do a formal experiment of is it possible to create a bilingual comedy um, and have the audience read super titles? Um, uh, uh, Soft Power, obviously, uh, you know, ha as you say, has the King and I reference, and, and then it's also trying to. Uh, address this formal question of can a play become, a, can you do a play that becomes a musical? Um, 
M. Butterfly, of course, is a, is a deconstruction of Madame Butterfly, but is also modeled on the Peter Schaffer plays. Uh, structurally, they're very similar to Equus and Amadeus. So I'm usually pretty conscious of that. Soft Power does become like a big, splashy musical. It really is, it's really deceiving when it, when it starts and then when it opens up and becomes this big, lush, gorgeous, full-sounding musical, it, it really it, it sweeps you away so unexpectedly. Thank you. And, and it's, um, that was one of those things that, you know, until first preview, we had no idea whether it was going to work at all. <laughs> and not only the formal experiment in terms of is our audience is going to accept it as a musical, but our audience is even going to understand what's going on. So, um, so it's a great relief that the show was received as well as it was <laughs> in LA and San Francisco. Well, musicals are usually very formally simple, right? They're very linear or, you know, there's a very basic plot that, you know, it, it, that pretty much most major musicals follow. And part of what I love about Soft Power is exactly that, right? That it challenges the audience to experience a musical in a way that they never have before. Well, I think the challenge of Soft Power was to, that the, the musical itself, the musical portion of it, it is actually very simple right. and does adhere to various American musical tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the play right. attempts to uh, make you see that musical through a different lens. Uh, and, and that's kind of the challenge to create something that was sort of, or is, we're still working on it, um, that is both um, a kind of satirical and a deconstruction and yet completely earnest. Um, so, uh, and you know, that, that challenge represents for me the contradiction of seeing something like The King and I and feeling, oh, content-wise, I'm uncomfortable, but, um, but it's so earnestly done, it was so much emotion that I feel it anyway. Mm. I, I just love that by any marker, you're a successful person. And you just said that you didn't know if the audience was going to get it, you didn't know if it would work at first. And I love that you and your collaborators, again, no matter how successful you are, you're putting out your art and your vision and your point of view and let the chips fall where they may. And it's just, it's, it's very exciting to hear that. Oh, thank it, it you. Never, that the work never stops. And, yeah. And the risk taking and the bravery. Yeah, I don't think there's any point in doing it, really, if you're not taking those sorts of risks. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say, I mean, I do a lot of commercial work and, and it's not necessary. you know, those things you're trying to make more of a, of a sure bet. But in terms of kind of my personal work, um, I only want to do it if I feel like I'm exploring something that is new for me. I'm going to learn something by doing it. Um, and any experiment involves a degree of risk by definition. So um, yeah, otherwise I could just do commercial work. <laughs> so was that the appeal of, of reworking the book for Flower Drum Song? Mm-hmm. That idea of taking a risk and exploring something? And is that what draw you, drew you to that project? Um, well, Did you want to write a wrong? What? Well, with Flower Drum Song, I feel like that was a musical. That, okay, talk about the fact that there. We, we talked earlier about the fact that there wasn't an Asian or Asian American playwright on Broadway before me, as far as anybody can tell. Um, but there was also no show. There was never a Broadway show, as far as I'm aware, about Asian Americans. There are a lot about Asians, Asians in Asia. But in terms of the Asian American experience, Flower Drum Song was the only thing. Um, 
And the fact that for various reasons, whether it was because of content that started to feel outdated or because people didn't feel that they could cast it or because it just wasn't, I think most people would agree, not the strongest of the Oscar Hammerstein books. Um, and he wrote with Joseph Fields. Um, the, 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 the show had just sort of fallen off the face of the earth. Nobody was doing it anymore. So there was a part of me that just wanted to revive Flower Drum Song. Um, and since we were even then, by, um, t we're talking about sort of the late 90s, early aughts, living in a period of revisicals right. where people were taking books and, and uh, hopefully fixing them, um, that, was, that was basically my impulse. I love, um, I was a big, big fan of, of that production and I, I listened to the album often and the thing I love most about the album, which I think is possibly you're doing is at the very end when every character says what town they're oh, from. Oh, I love that. Thanks. I get teary every time I hear it, and I, I hear it quite a bit. Because um, oh, I am a huge fan of, of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, and I just love that moment where every person says, I'm from Ottawa, Canada, and I'm from Glendora, California, wherever they happen to be from. It's just, it's magnificent. And I, I have a feeling that was your doing. Well, and, and by the way, it wasn't something that, w we originally did it at the at, uh, Century Theatre Group in LA at the Mark Day Perform, and it was incredibly, um, it did in incredibly well there, better than it did on Broadway. But anyway, um, that was not the ending in LA of the show. It was really only, we did one of these, um, uh, you know, presentations for group sales um, for the Broadway production, and everybody, somehow we hit on, hit on this idea of having everybody sort of introduce themselves and say where they were from. And it was so moving at the group sales event that um, I decided to incorporate it into the show itself. Before we go, we always ask everybody um, this, this final question, and that is, what was that show that you saw that first did it for you, that sort of bit you? and gave you the theater bug? The thing that, actually, I'll, I'll tell, a, that, that there's a few different stories I could tell. Well, I'll tell two, and you can decide which one do you want to use. <laughs> we'll use both, I'm sure. Um, so one was, I did not grow up in a theater family, but uh, I grew up in a music family. My mom's a pianist, and she, uh, so there was a company that was founded uh, in LA called East West Players, which is the nation, now the nation's oldest uh, Asian American theater company. Um, and in their like second season, they did a production of Minotti's operetta, The Medium, reset in post-war Japan. And my mom was the rehearsal pianist and I was eight years old. And so I could either have gone to rehearsal or I could you know, have been babysat by my aunt and I decided to go to rehearsal. Um, and I think, I don't actually remember too much about that production, but I do think there's something significant about the fact that at a relatively early age, I just saw all these people who looked like me, who were artistic leaders, who were the director, who were the actors. So maybe subconsciously that made me think that it wasn't so outlandish to consider a career as a playwright when I got to college. So, and then the other story is actually not as good, which is that <laughs> I, um, it, was, it was really like a, as a freshman um, at Stanford, we got kind of bussed up to uh, see things in the Bay Area and I saw two shows at ACT. Uh, I saw um, 
uh, The Winter's Tale, directed by Bill Ball, and, I, and The Matchmaker. And those two shows made me think, oh, maybe I can do that. The day I was born in Manila, Philippines. The day I was born in Quezon City, Philippines. The day I was born in Taipei, Taiwan. In Honolulu, Hawaii. In Fairfax, Virginia. In New York City. In Burlington, Ontario. In Providence, Rhode Island. In Carlisle, Pennsylvania. In Ottawa, Canada. In Oakland, California. In Brooklyn, New York. In Seoul, Korea. In Okinawa, Japan. In Selden, Long Island. In Toronto, Canada. In Fremont, California. In Dallas, Texas. In Los Angeles, California. In Hong Kong. My father says that children keep growing, rivers keep flowing too. My father says he doesn't know why, but somehow or other they do. They do, somehow or other they do. A hundred million miracles a hundred million miracles are happening every day And those who say they don't agree Are those who do not hear or see here with you may be wondering. It is impossible to overstate just how important David Henry Huang's voice and leadership has been to encouraging and increasing diversity in American theater. In our conversation, he touched on some of the many ways that theater can be and become more inclusive of traditionally underrepresented and marginalized groups. One way is by supporting theater companies that are specifically dedicated to producing works by and about such groups. You may be wondering, what are some good examples? Well, in the context of Asian American theater artists, David mentioned the East-West Players in Los Angeles. Founded in 1965, East-West Players, or EWP, is the nation's longest-running professional theater of color and the largest producing organization of Asian American artistic work. Started by nine Asian American artists who were seeking opportunities to take on roles beyond the stereotypical parts that they kept being offered in Hollywood in the 1960s, EWP's exclusive focus is on works and educational programs that foster dialogue exploring Asian Pacific experiences. By doing so, they provide unique opportunities for Asian American artists to work and create, advocate for more diverse representation of the Asian American experience on stage, TV, and across all media, and importantly, welcome and attract both Asian and non-Asian audience members. To date, EWP has produced over 220 original plays and musicals, including more than 100 premieres, and has held more than 1,000 readings and workshops. Past productions include shows like Rashomon, Pacific Overtures, M. Butterfly, Golden Child, Chinglish, and Allegiance, all of which are explicitly about Asian characters. But also, they do classic plays like The Doll's House, Three Sisters, Hedda Gobbler, The Twelfth Night, and musicals like The Three Penny Opera, Company, A Chorus Line, Into the Woods, Sweeney Todd, Follies, La Caja Fall, and this season, Mamma Mia! 
All of these shows give Asian actors a chance to play parts that are so often just narrow-mindedly cast with white people. In 1998, EWP moved from a 99-seat black box theater in Silver Lake to its current home, the 240-seat David Henry Huang Theater at the Union Center for the Arts in Los Angeles' Little Tokyo Historic District. A fitting tribute to America's most prominent Asian playwright, EWP also houses the David Henry Huang Writers Institute, the most active Asian Pacific American playwright development program in the country. Through that program, they offer a series of writing classes designed to foster new works for the stage that embrace the voice of multi-ethnic America and especially the Asian Pacific and American experience. Across the country, in New York, the Pan-Asian Repertory Theater, founded as a resident company at La Mama in 1977, specializes in intercultural productions of new Asian American plays, Asian classics in translation, and innovative adaptations of Western classics. Ma Yi Theater Company, founded in 1989, is another organization whose primary mission is to develop and produce new and innovative plays by Asian American playwrights, starting first with a focus on the Filipino American experience, then expanding in the late 1990s to include new works by other non-Filipino Asian American playwrights. This is just a flavor of the many wonderful companies created to give a voice to Asian American theater artists. It's a truism that talent is universal, but opportunity is not. So as you think about your own theater going, be mindful to include shows and companies that feature diverse stories, performers, and creators. There certainly is no shortage of great work being done in New York, from the companies I've mentioned to major nonprofits like the Public Theater, Playwrights Horizons, Roundabout, MTC, Second Stage, MCC, and Classic Stage, to others that are more specifically tailored, like the National Black Theater in Harlem, Repertorio Espanol in Kipps Bay, and Women's Project Theater on the Upper West Side. If you, like me, want to see theater become more inclusive, support the change you want to see. Jennifer here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.